So one of the solutions for for this uh, is actually the pension, right? Because if you contribute to the pension, plus if you also contribute to the RCA, you can significantly use those deductions to neutralize your capital gains on this, right? Yeah, so I, I sort of jotted out, you know, some alternative corporate investment solutions the two that really come to mind, the most powerful anyways, are the corporately owned life insurance or a pension plan, or both. Yep. So if you are in the small business deduction corporate tax rate, you know, you're only paying in Ontario 12.2% uh, on, on those dollars. But if you've eliminated your small business deduction rate in Ontario those dollars are taxed at 26.5 percent but the but the, the point I wanted to make is that only the pension as a solution will allow you to neutralize that uh, small business clawback Today, we're going to be talking about the small business allowance. So what does it mean to have a small business? Or in the case of a physician or a nurse practitioner or even a dentist, is to have an incorporation and work under that corporation. And you, you, if you have that corporation, then your income via that corporation is taxed differently. So for the corporation, the corporate tax rate is 26.5%. But any amount of revenue made before 500000 or any income less than 500000 is taxed at 12.2%. And so this is what we're going to be talking about today and how to mitigate the Welcome back to How's My Financial Health Doc podcast, and I'm your host, Vuket Tran. I am really, really excited to uh, have you guys back on today because we're going to be talking about a really common problem that physicians meet uh, all the time. And we have an expert with us today, and this is my good friend, Nick Giovanetti. You've heard him before. Uh, he has a very sexy, sultry voice, and so you'll quickly recognize him. Uh, welcome back to the show, Nick. Thanks for having me, Vu. And um, I would say you definitely have the Matt McConaughey book reading voice that could send me off into a deep slumber at night. Well, that's how I put people to sleep when I do procedural sedations in the Emerge, for sure. <laughs> I don't use propofol anymore. Um, so, Nick, uh, welcome to the show. And I really want the audience to understand the knowledge that Nick has because I've not met a lot of people 
like Nick, who has this type of knowledge. So first of all, Nick is a CFP, Certified Financial Planner. He's also a CLU, so a Certified Life Underwriter, which also means that he knows everything and everything underneath the sun when it comes to insurance policies. And you know what? You, you guys know how much I love to talk about insurance. But he also has two more things, a CHS and a CCS, which have which means that he has different uh, other um, knowledge behind his belt, under his belt. So explain to us what those two mean and um, how does it help you in your practice with those type of knowledge? For sure. Yeah. So the the CFP and the and the CLU, the Chartered Life Underwriter, uh, they're very well known. Um, you know, CFP is an international accreditation. CLU is North American. So they have those down in the U.S. But the CHS is a certified health insurance specialist. And when you're building out financial plans and working with clients, there's a, a large need to really understand the living benefit side of insurance products. So this involves things like disability insurance, critical illness insurance, long-term care, and group benefits, even as a touch on uh, group benefits. So having the expertise and the knowledge in that space helps me when I'm building robust financial plans, because one of the, the greatest risk factors to any plan is if some something happens to you um, and you continue to live, but your income is severely impacted and the planning is impacted. And the CCS, is a more niche down uh, approach to cash flow planning. So it stands for Certified Cash Flow Planning Specialist. Um, what it focuses more on is not budgeting, but behavioral cash flow management and working with the psychology around money and how different people view money, different people spend money, and um, really getting down to the behavioral way that people approach their finances. Thank you very much, Nick, for explaining that to us and um it's very important the the ccs designation that you have in regards to our next discussion here because our next discussion here is about incorporation and the small business tax deduction so just so for the audience uh so that we provide context Many of us are incorporated. Some of us are still not. But those of us who are incorporated, uh, we have this thing called a small business tax deduction within the corporation, which means above a certain amount uh, that we make in terms of revenue inside that income, uh, the corporation faces a different tax. So similar to personal tax, we have different tax brackets for a small business, we have a, a certain amount of tax, which is, I believe, 26.5. But if we make below a certain amount, that tax rate is actually less. So let's talk about that. Let's set the let's set the context. Let's set the, the baseline of what we are going to be talking about. And what is that magic number, Nick? Sure. So, so the magic number around um, having a small, they, they refer to it as the uh, small business deduction is on your first $500,000 worth of income, 
uh, eligible income inside the corporation, you're not taxed at the regular rate in Ontario of 26.5%. You actually are eligible to have a tax rate at 12.2%. So massive uh, savings that physicians, small, medium business owners, you know, you're going to want to pay attention to that because if you can reduce your taxes that significantly, that's going to make a serious impact on your on your purchasing power of what you're making. Okay, so let me understand this. If uh, if my corporation, my MPC, is generating less than five hundred thousand, uh, my corporation is potentially paying uh, how much? Twelve point uh, in Ontario, twelve point two percent. Twelve point two percent tax. Yeah. So if I'm if my corporation, my MPC is making less than five hundred thousand, then my MPC is paying a tax rate of twelve point two percent. If my MPC is generating above that 500, every dollar above the 500 is now taxed at 26.5. So as an example, Nick, if my corporation this year made 400, so my 400 is taxed at 12.2%. But if my corporation this year is making, let's say, 750, then the 500 is taxed at 12.2%, but the additional 250 above the 500, so 250 in this scenario, 250,000 is now taxed at 26.5%. Am I understanding this right? That's correct, yeah. Okay. And, and I'll just add, so let's say your corporation earns 500,000, but you may have deductions and, and write-offs. So from the 500 that comes in after all your deductions for office space, licensing, all the things that you have to pay for, you might be left with say 350 or, Got it. or, or 360. So this tax rate would be applied to that whatever's left over. So the tax rate is on taxable income, not gross income. Correct. Okay. Now let's think about this for a minute. You know, if you're, if you're in the lower echelon of the pecking order, so family doctors, internist, uh, emerge doc, you're probably in the 300, 350. So the likelihood, you know, after all deduction and conferences and meals and stuff like that, that CRA will will accept, you're probably going to still be going to be under the 500, but maybe not. Um, some of us have practiced a long time. Uh, because we have white hair to to prove it. And so many of us, even though we're in the low pecking order of in terms of revenue, we practice long enough that our salary has significantly increased over time. So even emergency doctors, internists, family doctors can potentially make over 500 as they grow their practices, right? So it wouldn't be unusual for what I call these frontline physicians to make over 500. So there still be a, an issue and a problem for these type of professionals. Where the issue really comes into play are what I call the specialist, right? So for example, the cardiologist, the cardiovascular surgeon, the, the ophthalmologist, the radiologist, where they make significantly more. And so even at very early years of practice, they may potentially make over 700, 800, some of these specialties make over a million. So what you're saying is that the first 500 
sorry. So they they also get their tax deductions, right? They also get their their licensing fee, their professional fee, their conference. And so after you deduct all that, and assuming that someone has used all those deductions, but they're still at seven fifty, then that same example, that two fifty is now taxed at twenty six point six, and the mm -hmm. first five hundred is at twelve point two. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So as we as the the corporation makes more money over time, uh, then these type of issues starts to creep up. Yes. Yeah. Now that we understand this basic principle, let's now talk about something else that I've seen a lot of times. Uh, a lot of my colleagues are physicians and they've married other physicians. And what I've seen also is that these two professionals use one corporation, so one MPC. So we've discussed this a little bit, Nick. What are the issues when that happens? So the issue would be uh, two physicians, even as you mentioned, what you would say, low pecking order, even though, you know, uh, not so low pecking order to, to the most people, but a family physician, uh, you know, generating $500,000 worth of income, when they bring those together and they're under one corporation, you now have foregone $500,000 of small business deduction for the other partner or for one of the partners, because you've combined that into one corporation. We're now right off the hop, you're at a million dollars. Of, of, of income coming in. You may have 300,000 worth of deductions through both of your licensing fees and various things that, that you're paying for, but you're gonna be left with 700,000. Now, in the situation where you are under one corporation, that means $200,000 of that is gonna be taxed at 26.5%, paying $53,000, when 200,000, if you had two separate corporations, meaning 350 in each, that 200,000 really should have only been taxed at 24,400. 24, so you can see how there's a massive change in taxation there. Even though that may not seem like a huge amount, that's about $2,000 a month of additional tax. Well, that's significant. Um, and and you're using you're using an example of 500 and 500 but you know I I have a lot of colleagues who are both specialists uh one is an orthopedic surgeon and the other one is a radiologist and so these are both very very high income earning professionals so assuming that in the 700s each where we're talking about 1.5 million right? So 1.5 million, you're well, well, well above the 500 cutoff line. I don't, I don't know how much tax deduction you can get from licensing fee and professional fee, and I don't know how much wine you can drink. But you know, uh, I don't think wine is is considered a, a deduction anyways because you have to be really careful how you deduct your dinners and your, and your meetings. But that's a lot of deduction to to get through to come back to come down to 500. So mm -hmm. in a scenario where both physicians are specialists, it becomes even a bigger problem. Absolutely, because the first 500,000, if you're declaring your, or, or, you, or you're part of the small business tax rate, small business deduction tax rate, tax on 500,000 is only $61,000 at 12.2. But if you're 
taxing an additional 500,000 that could have been taxed at 61,000, but you've combined your corporations. So now instead of having really a million dollars of small business deduction, you only have 500,000. That extra 500,000 that you could have written down is, is now paying $132,000 in tax. So you've more than doubled taxation on $500,000 by having one corporation instead of two. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So let's let's backtrack a little bit. Now that we know this, you know, small business deduction and the magic number is 500,000, what were the advantages of having two professionals in one corporation? Why would my colleagues have set something up like this? Why? What were the thinking behind that in the first place? Well, something that comes top of mind is that when you do have a corporation, you're going to have some additional costs that go along with that. You're going to have to have two bank accounts instead of one if you have two, two corporations. You're going to have to do two separate corporate tax filings instead of one. You're going to have to pay to have not only one corporation opened, but you'll have to pay to have two opened. But the big time cost of that seems so minimal to me when you could potentially be exposing yourself to um, you know, $71,000 of additional taxation annually. Right To open up a corporation and register a corporation might be about $1,000, maybe $2,000, depending on who you're working with. An extra bank account might be $30 a month. And an, an extra tax filing every year might be $1,000 a, uh, a year. So not huge expenses, but significant taxation by not having it set up as two corporations. So really need to think about, you know, the amount of money that you're spending versus the amount of taxes that you'll be paying down the road. Um, so if you're thinking, yeah, I'm going to save, you know, in the numbers that you threw out there, we're talking about maybe $4,000 a year, max, maximum 4,000. Uh, so we're, we're saving $4,000 a year, but we're potentially losing 71,000 in taxes. Well, if we're talking specialists, like the numbers of dollars earned, as you were mentioning earlier, for sure, because they're probably left with more than a million dollars net taxable money inside that company. And I I see this a lot. I mean, I have obviously colleagues who are family doctors married to other specialists. I've I've seen um, radiologists married to, you know, cardiologists. I've seen, you know, rheumatologists married to other surgeons. So um, definitely if you have two very high earning professionals in one corporation, uh, from a taxation perspective, it it really doesn't make sense to be under one roof. Yeah, and I and I forgot to mention this disclaimer at the beginning, but again, I'm not an accountant. I'm not a I'm not a CA. I'm not a CPA, and I'm not a tax lawyer. So it is always advisable that you consult those individuals. But from the certified financial planning standpoint, or standpoint, those numbers seem to not make sense as to why you would have one corporation. So now let's jump on to a, a different but somewhat related topic of taxes inside a corporation. And that is the issue of, you know, investing inside the corporation. 
So when I was young uh, and naive and didn't know much about life, I was told by, you know, a lot of accountants that says, Vu, you should incorporate. And after you incorporate, you should leave as much money as possible uh, in your corporation and use your corporation to invest. And so myself and many of my colleagues have been doing that for a long, long time. And, you know, when you practice 20, 23 years, obviously some of us may have a lot of retained earnings. And those, and with those retained earnings, we have invested, right? We've put in GICs, we've invested into the market. You know, we made some money with S&P, we lost some money with crypto, you know. But, you know, bottom line is we've invested with those retained earnings. And uh, a lot of my colleagues who now, you know, have 15, 20 years of working experience and a significant amount of money inside their portfolio, which is making significant amount of money. And now they face the issue of passive income uh, issue and the taxation on that. So let's just talk a little bit about that. This has become a true problem, I believe, after the more no measures, right? Prior to the more no measures, I think it was not as big of an issue. So let's discuss about what the issue is and and what happens when 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 that happened, the, the more no measures, when it happened, and what does it mean? So let's start talk about that. So uh, let's take the example of a colleague of mine who uh, has worked for 20 years, had retained earning, now has a portfolio of, let's call it $2 million. So he's got a portfolio of $2 million in his uh, investment slash savings inside his corporation. So let's use that as a background for discussion. Just to give some context to that um, and to to the advice given by accountants at the time, that's the thing with, with taxes in, in Canada is the federal budget can change every year. There were some new rules around passive income that became effective uh, in 2019. So I'll just give you a little backstory on it, Vu, not to go on a tangent here. But the new rules on passive income, when when business income is distributed as a salary, let's say, or when an unincorporated person, an unincorporated business owner earns business income personally, uh, the business owner must pay a full personal tax in the year the income is earned. But when business income is distributed as dividends, the corporate tax on the business income is lower. It's lower than the personal tax rate on salary. And personal tax on dividend is only payable when dividends are paid. So if dividend payments are deferred to a future year, for example, additional funds are available uh, to invest in the corporation in the interim. So this, this says you may yield more investment income over time uh, compared to a business owner who invests after-tax uh, salary income personally. Well, the government is always looking at this stuff, and they thought that this provided an unfair benefit to owners of, of, a, of a Canadian-controlled private corporation or a CCPC uh, who chose to defer that personal tax by delaying the payment of dividends and building up, you know, significant funds uh, in their corporation. So with a particularly low small business deduction rate, the potential from 
uh, this large tax deferral uh, was most of their concern. So in, 20, in the effective 2019, the federal government said, okay, $500,000 uh, small business deduction limit is going to reduce for Canadian controlled private corporations uh, based on the levels of passive income that they may have they may have gotten inside their corporation in the previous year. What their deduction is, is the small business deduction limit. It actually reduces by $5 for every $1 of passive income that exceeds $50,000. And then it reaches zero once your passive income is at $150,000 earned in a year. That's that's not too difficult to achieve. So your colleague who has $2 million invested, even if we want to say conservatively, that money is growing at, let's just say he's in a balance and growing at six and a half percent, $2 million at six and a half percent is $130,000. So if you're reducing your small business deduction, so remember what the small business deduction is $500,000 in your corporation only being taxed at 12.2%. If you're reducing that now to make it so that the income inside your corporation will be exposed to 26.5% on the first 500,000, all because you're investing $2 million inside your corporation passively and it's generating $130,000 a year, you've eliminated more than half of your small business deduction just from that $2 million sitting there growing at six and a half percent. It's a balancing act. You've got to pay attention to everything that's going on inside the corporation. And unfortunately, this is a change that took effect in 2019. So account accountants advice prior to that may not be valid today. Right. And, and, you know, like you say, tax laws change. So with all these changes, we also have to change how we manage our money within the corporation. So let me just unpack a little bit what you just said there, because you and I understood that, but I think a lot of my colleagues listening to this may not have catch everything. The change in 2019, the philosophy behind that was, if I have an MPC in a small business uh, corporation, the government expects our corporation to make money actively, right? So we're, we're supposed to use this corporation to be a small business to make money on an active basis. They're, they're not expecting us to make some money, cap, keep that retained earning, and use the retained earning to make even more money. So because of that, they say enough of this, you guys need to actually make money actively. So they're saying the the money that you're making passively, we will now tax that heavily. Two, we also mentioned earlier that the normal tax rate for a corporation is 26.5%. But in the first 500, we'll give you guys a break. It's going to be 12.2%. If you stay below that 500, anything above that 500 will be the normal tax rate, which is 26.6.5%. But the government is saying, well, now if you're making a lot of passive income, every dollar above the 50,000. So the government says, I'm okay if you make $50,000 of passive income inside a corporation. 
But if you make more than 50,000 above the 50,000, every dollar that you make, I'm going to, I'm going to punish you severely. So for every dollar above that 50,000, there's a clawback of $5 to that small business tax deduction. So, which means that the moment you make a hundred thousand above that fifty thousand, you lose the entire five hundred thousand small business deduction rate, because five dollars times a hundred thousand is five hundred thousand. So, if your if your portfolio is making a hundred thousand above the five the fifty then you lose the entire 500,000 small business tax deduction, which means if you're making a lot of money passively, which we all would like to do, but if we did that, our first dollar on the first revenue dollar from the corporation is not taxed at 12.2 anymore. It's immediately taxed at 26.6. What that means is if I have a portfolio big enough, and I'm just investing in a balance fund or whatever that's making me 6.5%. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how I look at it, if I made over $150,000 through my passive investment, then my corporation loses the entire 500,000 small business tax deduction. And what you're saying, Nick, is it's not that hard, right? Um, colleagues like mine who've been practicing 15, 20 years and they've gone through those good days of the market being so, so good, you know, back in from 2008 to 2019 when the market was just rising and rising and, you know, everybody was just drinking champagne and, you know, there's, there's, there's no bad things in the market and they were making 10, 12%. So imagine all of a sudden they have a, a portfolio of 2 million, 2.5 million. Some some colleagues who were making a lot of really, really high income, potentially, as you were mentioning, could be in the four or five million. And so very quickly you exceed that 150,000 of passive income, which means that it eats away at your small business tax deduction. I mean, it's 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 sort of a blessing, but not really a blessing because you're making enough money in the passive side but you're losing your your tax deduction. You're losing your small business tax rate. And and I'll just play that out, the last scenario, just to add a little, and I don't know if people will slow this down and jot these numbers down, but let's go back to that example. So someone has $2 million growing at 6.5% balanced fund. So that means that their growth is 130,000 on that account because 130,000 is $80,000 over the $50,000 limit before you start losing $5. So this is where you said you multiply by five. So 80,000 times five is $400,000 of your $500,000 small business deduction limit. So now $400,000 of your income, if you were over that, that $400,000 is going to be taxed at an additional fourteen. dollars 0.3%, meaning you're going to pay an extra $57,200 in tax. So if we subtract that from your $130,000 gain on your $2 million, you're left with 72800 
So what's 72,800 on $2 million? That's only a 3.64% return. Basically cut your returns almost in half by knocking your earned income inside your corporation into a higher bracket. So this is a problem for a lot of my colleagues. Now, a lot of my audience listening to this who are in their, you know, they're brand new to the practice. They're they're brand new to the profession. They're brand new grads. They have, you know, a lot of debt to pay uh, and they haven't have money to even buy a house and invest. To that group of individual, what we're talking about right now is irrelevant, <laughs> right? Because they're saying, I don't even have that amount of money, Vu. Okay, I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about those who are in mid-career and late career, right? Or even I'm talking about maybe the early to mid-career, but the high, very, very high income position. For example, the surgeons and the ophthalmologists and the radiologists. In that group, they will reach that threshold much, much, much faster than mid-career. So they will face that problem very, very quickly. So here's the question. I would like to benefit from passive income because everybody, you know, over the last five years, including myself, have been talking about generating passive income. We would, would like to have passive income. You know, I don't always want to break my back you know, and uh, dirty my hands to make money. I mean, I, I like medicine and I like working for money, but I would even love it more if my money made money. So, you know what? A lot of us are talking about passive income. So the question is for you, Nick, and maybe for people out there in the audience who knows the answer, how can I, as a physician, whether I'm a cardiologist, emerge doc, family doctor, whatever it is, how can I as a physician, in, use my corporation to be tax efficient, also benefit from investing and, and investing and making a passive income, but not lose out on the tax side. Yeah, great question. So there's different strategies that you can implement and really where the passive income issues. So it's, it's not an issue to have $2 million that's been retained in your company that's invested, that's growing at six and a half percent. The issue is where that money is sitting. So we need to figure out where are we going to put that money into some sort of a shelter that's not going to impact or eat away our small business deduction. Two key strategies really come to mind that are used, I would say, the majority of the time. One of those strategies would be implementing some form of a pension plan where instead of just leaving the money sitting in your corporation in some non-registered account, you start putting your monies that you're saving inside of a, of a pension plan, which now all of the growth, everything that can grow and happen inside of that pension plan will not impact your small business deduction. So it is very clear now that I need to disclose to the audience that we are going to be talking about pensions. And I am the president of the Canadian Physicians Pension Plan and the Canadian Professionals Pension Plan. 
So I want to make sure that this is fully disclosed and that we are going to be talking about pensions and I'm the president of these two companies and that the discussion of pensions is clearly very positive for this company and that, um, that the audience knows that we are going to go into a discussion that describes pension in a very positive position. And so the disclosure is made now so that everybody is fully aware. So there's a couple different pension plan opportunities if you're um, looking into that. So you have uh, individual pension plans, you have personal pension plans, and you have retirement compensation arrangements. Three very powerful vehicles, whichever one is right for you will depend on your scenario and your situation, but very, very powerful vehicles. And another vehicle could be corporately owned life insurance policies that have a growth or a wealth or a cash value or an investment account inside. These policies are able to grow wealth inside of the company. Well, not they're not really in the company, but the policy owned by the company. The monies that grow in there are not going to impact your small business deduction. So let me just jump in here, uh, Nick, and have a full disclosure. I'm so happy you talked about pensions, but the disclosure is that I am the co-founder and also president of the Canadian Physicians Pension Plan. So whatever you're talking about in terms of pension does uh, immediately relate to what I have created. So uh, I just wanted to make sure that the audience know that I'm disclosing uh, immediately uh, that aspect of that discussion. Two strategies that you're talking about. One is a pension plan and inside the pension plan, you mentioned the individual pension plan, which is the IPP. You mentioned the PPP, which is a personal pension plan, which also correlates to what I've created called the Canadian Physicians Pension Plan, which is the CPPP. And then the, th the fourth one would be the Retirement Compensation Arrangement, the RCA, So, which I have also a podcast episode on that. So I encourage the audience to listen to all of them, the IPP, the PPP, the Canadian Physicians Pension Plan, and additionally, the RCA. So explain to us that first, and we'll, we'll jump into the uh, corporately, loan, corporately owned life insurance. Explain to us how a pension plan, regardless of which one, how a pension plan really helps mitigate that small business deduction and the passive income issue. So a pension plan, what's really unique about a pension plan is just think of it as when you're personal, uh, money that you have personally putting into an RSP. It's going to function very similar, except for now this is happening on the corporate side. So if you think of me, let's just say I'm John Doe. I collected a personal income of $100,000. And I decided to put some of my income inside a registered retirement savings plan. That monies that I put in the RRSP is deductible to my 100 grand. So if I put 30,000 into an RSP, now I'm only declaring earned income on as $70,000, right? I've reduced my, my income declared. And money that grows in the RSP can continue to grow, compound, and I don't have to worry about any taxation on anything that's going on inside of that account until I decide to withdraw the money at a later date in the future. A pension plan is that all of this is happening corporately. So money that comes into the corporation, let's say 500,000, and I have a pension plan 
for myself. My company is now sponsoring a pension plan. If we put $100,000 into our pension plan, now my business looks as if it has made $400,000. So that $400,000 is all that is would be a taxable income to the corporation or taxable business income. And that 100,000 that I've shoved off into a pension plan, I don't have to worry about any small business deduction clawback because the money in there is exempt from that test, right? It's part of a registered pension plan that CRA has very unique rules around and, it, and it's not going to impact the small business deduction. And also just so that the audience understand, if I use that 100,000, for example, uh, that I, not the 100,000, let's just say I've, I've saved, you know, retainer earnings of 50,000 uh, and I use that 50,000 to invest. Well, I inside the corporation, I would have to do it in a non-registered account and I would put it in that same balance fund that you talked about. Well, mm-hmm. instead of doing that and having that issue of the passive income and the small business clawback, that same 50000 inside the pension, because it's inside the pension, is no longer subject to that uh, issue. But also, I can also invest in the same balance fund. Right. And so I don't have to do anything different. I invest in the exact same thing, the exact same Tesla in the exact same crypto I wanted to. But instead of doing it in a non-registered account, I did it in a registered account inside a corporation. Exactly. Like I stated before, the problem is not that you're a diligent saver and that you kept two million dollars back inside your corporation that you didn't just take it out personally and go buy you know, a house in Maui and a nice Ferrari to get there. That's not the problem. The problem is where you're housing that $2 million. You want to put that $2 million somewhere that's not going to impact your small business deduction. And it's also going to allow you to enjoy the fruits of your labor of, of being a diligent saver. I would rather have my money compounding and growing in a tax sheltered environment where I'm actually seeing all of those returns and those gains year over year over year over year. And then when I go to draw on that income in the future, I've accumulated a larger pool of capital because of that. So you took the example of the 500,000 and then minus the 100 and now they're taxed at 400. But you know what? I don't think it's powerful enough until you talk about the person making the 600 or the 700, right? Because for that person, the first 500 is taxed at 12.2 and the other additional 200 is taxed at 26.6. So if I take that example of that 700 grand of income and now I'm able to put my money inside a pension plan and additionally inside an RCA, which is a supplementary pension plan, I potentially now be able, my corporation, when I say I, I mean my corporation, can potentially now contribute 150, 200, 210 into these pension plans, which significantly brings down my taxable income. So instead of being taxed at 700, I'm now being taxed at 490, which now brings me below the 500,000 mark. That for me is powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, tax is the greatest destroyer of wealth. So why pay more of it? Then you need to, 
Like we've already gone through that example of you might have been earning six and a half percent, but due to the taxation in another area of your business, that dropped your rate of return from six and a half to three point, I forget the exact, 3.6 or something. Yeah, 3.4 so you mentioned. Let's think about the rule of compounding. The rule of compounding is the rule of 72. If my money is compounding at six and a half percent, that means I'm going to start to see that money double every 11 years. If my money is growing at 3.6%, my money doubles every 20 years. So let's think about that. If I have 100,000 invested, if it doubles, well, let's just use round numbers. Let's say it doubles every 10 years. So after 10 years, my 100 grand is 200 grand. After another 10 years, it's 400 grand. And after another 10 years, it's 800,000. Okay, that's a 30-year time horizon of $100,000 doubling every 10 years. Now let's double it every 20 years. So my 100,000 after 10 years is only 150,000. After 20 years, it's only 200,000. After 30 years, it's only 300,000. So we're not talking about just cutting your return in half. We're actually talking about cutting your overall nest egg in less than half. Uh, this is this is really really powerful, really powerful, and it's not like we did anything different. All we did was saying instead of investing in a non-reg account, you invest in a pension account, right? Whether again, whether it's IPP, PPP, CPP, BRCA, doesn't matter. The moment you read, you invest. By the way, the exact same thing, <laughs> right? The same balance fund that you were you were going to do anyways. Instead of doing in a non-registered account, if you're doing in a pension account, the power of compounding and the the power of tax grinding is very, very different. And in a non-registered account, the tax grind just destroys the wealth. And I and I keep saying this to people, and the people don't understand. In your example of the 800,000 after 30 years versus 300,000 after 30 years. That's a difference of, let's say 400 to 500,000, okay? In that four to 500,000 over 30 years, how many hours does that represent? And I don't know, everybody's different. Hypothetically, just using round numbers. I don't, I, I'm not saying that this is exactly true, but let's assume that every shift is a thousand dollars, right? So, uh, 500,000 divided by a thousand, that's 500 hours of work over 30 years. That's a lot of hours per year, right? And uh, what can I do if I had those extra hours? What could I do? Right? I could do a lot of things. Um, and so I don't think people should poo-poo or, you know, minimize the effect that tax has on uh, their wealth but also on their burnout, because this really does affect burnout. I'll, I'll leave you with a, one, one analogy. It's, I forget who said it now, and I say it all the time. I can't believe I forget his name right now. Um, I want to say it's Rob Kiyosaki, but his, his saying is, it's not about how much money you make. It's, a, it's about how much money you keep. Agree. It's not about how much money you make. It's about how much money you keep. Okay, so now the second solution that you were talking about, the life insurance. So explain to us how the life insurance in your example, in your scenario, 
your strategy, how does that mitigate somewhat the uh, the tax implications that we've been talking about all day? Yeah, so life insurance generally, although there are some scenarios where it, it could be tax deductible, generally the monies that you're putting into a life insurance, corporately owned life insurance, are not deductions to your corporation the same way that saving inside of a, of a registered pension plan would be or a retirement compensation arrangement. However, the money that's in that life insurance policy, if structured properly or using uh, an appropriate product, it can be built around wealth creation. So you can see some significant growth in value inside of your life insurance policy. And that growth in value inside of your life insurance policy can also produce tax-efficient, tax-free cash, cash flow. And all of the growth in that policy, while you're you know, putting it in all along the years, it's not part of the test to claw back on that small business deduction. That's right. So in essence, instead of putting that 50000 that we were talking about, instead of putting in a non-registered account in the corporation, you could either put it in a pension plan or the other solution is put that same 50000 inside an insurance plan. Like with the pension plan, the 50000 inside an insurance plan that grows tax-free because it's an insurance product, that does not come into play when they talk about the uh, passive income rules and the test. So there are two solutions, two strategies that one can still quote-unquote invest and save while still circumventing that issue of the passive income test. Amazing, amazing. And I'll say both strategies have pros and cons and advantages and disadvantages. Of course, of course. Both strategies, though, can be implemented at the same time. So you could I, be I contributing to pension plans. You could be contributing to corporately owned life, life insurance policies. And what you're doing is you're just shoving more money into vehicles that are not going to, to impact that small business deduction. Correct. And still be great creators of wealth. Correct. Now, obviously, I would not, you know, if I didn't understand all this and I'm slowly learning this, I wouldn't probably go out and do this on my own tomorrow. Right. This is uh, this is not one of those, you know, where you see someone do a daredevil and you go and try this out on your own. Um, get a professional to help you with that. And, you know, uh, professionals like yourself, Nick, with a CFP, CLU and other designation behind their name to understand all this and the tax implications, but also to implement it correctly, right? Everything is in the implementation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I um, when looking for a, a professionals to work with, certified financial planners, they, they can be such an ally to the overall mix if they're wanting to be this for you. Whereas I tend to refer to myself more as an integrated wealth planner. So what that means is, is I'm more the project manager of your financial life. So I'm able to have conversations with your accountants, have conversations with your with your tax lawyers, have conversations with your private invest, investment managers. I can be the project manager to the whole pie. And then that way you as, a, as the individual, think of it like a family doctor. If you have a, a heart issue or heart condition and you need to see a specialist, you don't just walk in the hospital and say, I need to see a specialist. Your family doctor is going to make that referral 
pass the file, communicate potentially with them. And when you go into there, the, the, the heart specialist already has an idea of what's going on, but they're working, you know, quite, quite in unison with your family physician. That's a similar experience you can have when working in finance, because you do need specialists. But the problem is a lot of times they don't talk to each other. So there's nobody there tying everything together. Your accountant is not talking to your portfolio manager. Your portfolio manager is not talking to your banker. Your banker is not talking to your lawyer. So a, a, a strong CFP is really going to be an integrated wealth planner where they bring all those together because they're talking to all those individuals and you have the luxury of talking to one individual. That's a very good analogy uh, of the family doctor and, and the quarterback. So essentially, you know, a good quarterback with uh, a lot of, uh, obviously, financial uh, knowledge. Um, so, Nick, thank you very much today for sharing your um, your knowledge, your expertise, your wisdom with us on, on this topic, because uh, this is a topic that will affect uh, us as we grow in our profession, right? So for, as I mentioned earlier, maybe the brand new grad will not face this immediately, but very quickly, you know, after five, 10 years of practice, when you start accumulating enough funds within your corporation, that's when you start asking yourself, what do I do with this money? How can I, you know, benefit from passive income without destroying myself through taxes? And those of us who are in our mid to late career, we're in this in the thick now. <laughs> and we're like, how do we do it without, you know, being taxed to death? And those in our late career may, may be saying, listen, I, I was lucky not to not to have gone through those in the 80s and 90s, but now I'm facing this in 2019. How do I do it? So, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, these new taxes will affect us all in some different ways, but they will impact our uh, taxation. Absolutely. So thank you very much for uh, for helping us uh, with with that issue. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be here. And I will just end it off with saying, you know, physicians generally are highly educated and you have a deep, deep understanding of the medical industry or the medical field that you specialize in. And sometimes this can give a sense of having the same level of knowledge and education that may be required for other areas to, to fully excel in those areas. And some of those areas are investing in financial planning, but it's okay to work with professionals that live, breathe, and die in that space once you build a trust and rapport with them. Because to be great at your profession, you've got to go all in. And to be great in financial planning, investment advice, integrated wealth planning, you've got to go all in and spend all your time in there. To really stay up to date, we're talking about a tax change that was effective here 2019, right? So that was only three years ago or four years ago, I lost track of my years, but it's changing all the time. And if you're not living it, breathing it, dying it, you might miss something and it could cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. Absolutely. I, I believe in, you know, the 10,000 hours of practice in outliers, right? Uh, if I'm practicing emergency medicine, 10,000 10, hours a year, uh, I can guarantee you I'm not doing financial planning 10,000 hours a year either. So I, I'm good at what I do because I I am a master at my craft, but I have to recognize that I'm not a master at finance. <laughs> um, and so thank you very much for for letting us know about that wisdom. And we, you know, we can't do it all alone. Um, 
you learn that really quickly in emergency medicine, that it's teamwork. Uh, even as emerge doc, I can't do it alone. And so when it comes to our finances, we should have a team and we can't do it alone. I, I strongly believe that as well. Absolutely. And I and I'll say as well, I just met with with a very busy doctor and one of their biggest complaints was that they had to make all the phone calls and talk to all the people that had to do with their financial planning, their accountants, their corporate tax advisory, their lawyers, their bankers, their investment professionals, their estate planners, what have you. They had to make all of those calls on their days off and their times, their time off. And I think you already give it your all when you're working and you deserve that time off. And that's where a professional in the financial space can really assist you by just giving you your time back, which is priceless. Absolutely. I want my time back. And you're right. It is priceless. So thank you very much again, Nick. Uh, I, I'm hoping to have you back soon because we have many other topics to, to dive into. So uh, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Vu. Look forward to the next one. Cheers. I hope you had a good time listening to this particular podcast talking about the small business allowance and how passive income from your retained earnings can quickly destroy that small business allowance and take you from a 12.2% tax rate to a 26.5% tax rate. And if you're not careful, that can happen really, really quick, especially if you have a really high income. So again, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, please share it with your colleagues, especially those who face this right now. So please share it with your friends, your colleagues, your pets, your pet turtle, and I will see you guys next time. If you want to leave me with comments or feedback or even suggestions for future podcasts, please email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. Cheers. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice. 